0: This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, I'm joined by Evan Taparada, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History at Harvard University. Evan is currently authoring his latest book, State of Refugee, The Origins of Refugee Law and Policy in the United States. In this edition, he explores the origins of American refugee law in the years after World War II and how immigration policy in the past and present has centered around the interests of the U.S. settler state. So today we discuss its historical implications and how sentiments around settlement have developed throughout the 20th century. Evan, it's a pleasure to have you on.
1: Yeah, the the, pleasure is all mine. Thanks so much, Ian. I appreciate the invitation and I'm, I'm really happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Thank you. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, tell us a little bit about your academic background and what sparked your interest in studying how immigration policy contributed to defining the landscape of the United States.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I can kind of trace my interest in immigration history all the way back to when I was an undergraduate. Uh, so I started uh, at a community college in New Jersey. And uh, after getting my associate's degree, uh, I went on to Rutgers University and knew I wanted to study history, but I was kind of eager to see what history looked like outside of the classroom. And I was also really interested in learning more about my own family's immigration history. Uh, so I decided early on at Rutgers in my first year there to do an internship. And the internship I happened to be placed at was, uh, was at the Ellis Island National Immigration Museum. At Ellis Island, uh, I was mostly working in their oral history library. Um, This is something that if you just go to the museum as a visitor, it's really easy to miss. The oral history library is kind of tucked away on the the third floor. Uh, The entrance overlooks what they call the Great Hall, which is, you know, the space at Ellis Island, where when it was operating in the early 20th century, this is the space where immigrants you know, were processed as they were trying to enter the United States. But yeah, it turns out that there's an oral history library that features hundreds and hundreds of interviews that National Park Service employees conducted with immigrants who came to the US through Ellis Island when it was in operation. And my main job there was to transcribe these interviews, they were audio only and they, they needed to have a text record of the interviews. And I did a lot of that transcription work, um, all of which means I spent a lot of time listening to immigrants tell their story about coming to the United States. And it always struck me um, in, in almost every interview. I remember you know hearing National Park Service employees kind of very deliberately build up to these questions about you know how did it feel when you first saw the statue of liberty what was it like for you to first step foot on american soil you know these questions were kind of very much geared toward getting you know immigrants to talk about um, experiences that really resonate with the U.S. kind of nation of immigrants narrative of, of immigration history, um, and you know pe- people answered those questions uh, and and uh, you know had those conversations, but it was also really clear that they wanted to talk about more complicated experiences. Uh, so, for example, um, you know a lot of folks wanted to have conversations about being detained, um, about not knowing whether or not they'd actually even be able to enter the United States, or if their loved ones would be able to enter the country. Um, So, you know, I would would kind of go on walks around the museum on my lunch break and notice that those more complicated experiences around immigration and especially the impact of immigration law on immigrants, um, those stories weren't as much a part of the museum as, you know, the kind of more celebratory narratives around immigration. And so that kind of disjuncture or divide between this mythology um, or maybe even ideology of immigration about the U.S. as a nation of immigrants and, you know, how different that was compared to the experience, the experiences people actually have. Um, that, that's kind of what really first started or sparked my interest in, in pursuing immigration history, um, you know, and taking it more seriously as a, as a course of study for myself.
0: A lot of immigrants talk about that complication in having to transition to a completely new culture and what that reception will be uh, once you enter a new place and and how do you fit in this new area and with the family dynamics. So uh, you actually uh, received the University of Minnesota's Best Dissertation Award in the Arts and Humanities for your dissertation, No Asylum for Mankind first of all, congratulations. That's quite a feat. Um, thank you. <laughs> but um, in that writing, work, when you were working in Ellis Island, uh, was that like one of the impetus to, to start this dissertation? I'm not sure that the timeline. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. So um, and thank you again for, you know, those warm wishes and congratulations. I appreciate that. But yeah, absolutely. So when I first went to Minnesota for grad school, the intention was to kind of continue the work I started in the oral history library. You know, I was really interested in learning more and studying uh, those experiences of detention. So I intended to write a dissertation about what it was like for immigrants who were being detained at places like Ellis Island, but um, also at lesser known um, ports of entry uh, throughout the United States, especially along the US-Mexico border. And I was doing a first year research seminar um, with my PhD advisor, Erica Lee. I was you know, set, set out to do a research paper about detention of immigrants um, at, at the southern border. And while I was doing that research in National Archives records that um, happened to be available at the University of Minnesota through the library, um, or through the special collections, I should say, I kept coming across all these instances of immigration officials in the 1910s during the Mexican Revolution, talking about, applying immigration law to refugees of the Mexican Revolution. And uh, this really stuck out to me because the the usual narrative about the history of refugee policy in the United States is that it doesn't begin until after World War II with the Displaced Persons Act of 1948. And so it really um, struck me and surprised me to see immigration officials talking about using immigration law to deter the entrance of refugees during, during this moment of the Mexican Revolution. That, you know, kind of turned a light bulb on. And I started asking, you know, okay, if there's this example before the mid 20th century of uh, officials selecting which refugees can enter the United States, um, how far back does that go? How far back can we trace that? that was kind of the the germ of of what became the dissertation and, and what's now, you know, the, the book manuscript that I'm working on um, of this project where I'm exploring, um, you know, the much earlier history of refugee law policy in the United States.
0: Right. Can you talk a little bit about that selection process during that time? I guess in, in two ways, because uh, you, you mentioned in Ellis Island, the different uh, detainee practices. I I want to hear what were the causes for most of those detainees. And then also during the Mexican American war in the 1910s, what was the sentiment of the immigration officers at that time? And and why were they detaining and and deporting? And for what reasons?
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if we're thinking just big, big picture, immigration policy, you know, in this kind of early 20th century moment, as it was being enforced at places, especially like Ellis Island or like Angel Island. Um, you know, this is a moment in US history when exclusionary provisions in immigration law really exploded. Um, so, you know, the, what's kind of often described as the first federal exclusionary immigration laws, the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, um, the first law in US history that um, very explicitly excluded a group of immigrants based on their race. Um, that law had a huge impact, Um, you know, stemming from that initial policy, um, you begin to see all kinds of other exclusionary provisions in immigration law in the early 20th century, provisions like the likely to become a public charge clause that excludes immigrants, um, you know, out of concern for their their class and whether or not they'll be able to support themselves in the United States, Um, you know, provisions around moral turpitude, so immigrants could be excluded or deported if they were thought to be guilty of of crimes that were in some way morally unsavory. Um, you know, there, there's a really gendered component to that as well. Often, prostitution was um, you know a was something that people could be de- uh, deported or excluded for. Um, and then, of course, immigrants were were excluded along their uh, along lines of their political beliefs. Um, so there were provisions in the law that excluded people um, because immigration officials and you know the wider American public believed that uh, they were too radical right? Um, And anarchists in particular um, were often targeted for exclusion in this kind of early 20th century moment. Um, So that's the kind of big picture. And uh, that was, you know, those were some of the factors that were coming into play in immigration enforcement at places like Ellis Island. Uh, At the border during the Mexican Revolution, um, a lot of that was was certainly um, happening, you know, uh, those kinds of provisions in the immigration law were uh, were part of what officials were referring to when they encountered refugees. Um, but really, you know, for the most part, I would say it was primarily race and class um, that played the biggest factors in whether or not officials were going to let refugees enter. The u.s during the revolution so for example you know there's a moment during one particular incident in 1914 i believe um when several thousand refugees were trying to enter the u.s through uh, i believe it was eagle pass texas you know there was a train of incoming refugees and it was full of, of both americans and and mexicans and there was a lot of back and forth, and a lot of exchange, and a lot of debate between officials on the ground about um, whether the the American refugees could be allowed to, um, you know, just enter and cross the border, um, or whether they needed to be subjected to the same kinds of scrutiny that Mexican refugees did. Um, so there's a clear example there in which, you know, people who were American and people who had citizenship as well, um, you know, were kind of given a pass to to enter the U.S. freely, um, when, you know they were all fleeing violence and and persecution. Right. Yeah. There was also, you know, as I mentioned, class was a huge part of it. So, you know, officials expressed, um, a great deal more concern about refugees who, you know, uh, couldn't afford to pay their way into the United States, um, who didn't have jobs. Um, that was a big concern of officials as well. And there was a lot of kind of monitoring of the situation on the ground about, you know, whether or not there were jobs available in the region, would refugees be able to go and work there so that they didn't have to rely on public funds um, as a part of their their stay in the United States, that sort of thing, yeah.
0: Right. Um, And it's interesting to see the transition uh, because most of your focus is on World War II pre and post. So those ideas of selecting uh, immigrants based on uh, race and class, How has those sentiments sort of changed, or did they stay the same pre-World War II? And what was the sort of governing process post-World War II, if there was any change at all? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, Well, so post-World War II, I mean, especially immediately post-World War II, um, most refugee policy and decisions about which refugees would be allowed to enter the United States um, were made in concert with Um, with policy considerations around the Cold War. Um, So often, you know, um, when we're talking about post-war, post-World War II refugee policy, it's really Cold War refugee policy that we're talking Mm -hmm. about. And um, in that sense, refugee policy really was in many ways kind of um, another arm of Cold War foreign policy in which the United States would, you know, more routinely uh, allow refugees fleeing communist and Soviet regimes to come to the United States, because that, you know, uh, kind of reinforced the US's foreign policy agenda at that time, right? Um, You know, there was a a real kind of symbolic heft to the United States, allowing refugees fleeing communism to come to the United States, you know, a free capitalist society, etc. Yeah, so that, that was a huge part of the kind of Calculus around which refugees would enter the U.S. in the post-war era. Um, prior to, or rather, I should say, you know, if we, if we kind of you know think about that Cold War example and um, dig a little bit deeper into it, um, you know, at the crux of it, refugee policy in that Cold War arena was being used in a kind of utilitarian way. Um, you know, it was it was useful for the United States to admit those refugees those particular refugees, Um, that particular use of refugee policy, or, um, you know, I should say, using refugee policy in a way that meets the needs and interests of the United States. um, That's something that we can trace all the way back to the founding of the United States. Um, That's kind of, or at least, you know, I'm arguing in the book that I'm writing, that's the one real major consistent thread throughout refugee policy in the very, very long arc, big picture. Of United States history. Um, So, you know, for example, um, going back to 1798, right, this is 150 years before the Displaced Persons Act of 1948, Congress passes a law that allows Canadian and Nova Scotian refugees who supported the American Revolution and were displaced from their homes by the British to come to the US as refugees. And As part of the story of how that law comes to pass, um, there's a letter that George Washington writes to Congress before he becomes the President of the United States. Um, This was was sometime in the 1780s. Um, But Washington writes to Congress and says very explicitly, he uses the word useful um, in this letter. He says it would be useful for the United States to allow these Canadian refugees to come. Um, And it was useful because the, the places where they were encouraging those refugees to settle was in the Northwest Territory. Um, a part of the U.S. that the um, that the country was, you know, eagerly trying to seize from indigenous peoples, uh, and so in that sense, you know, we can see very early foundational refugee law having a relationship with the dispossession of of Native Americans uh, and the United States kind of broader settler colonial uh, agenda, right? Uh, yeah, so I mean, there's a, a kind of a, a a sense in which refugee policy is really different in the pre-war era. And that it was you know, used in ways that reflected settler colonialism, in ways that reflected um, the institution of slavery and emancipation during the Civil War, um, and in ways that reflected as well kind of the rise of exclusionary immigration policy. Um, but there is a consistency there too in all those differences in the sense that refugee policy in a lot of ways it, before World War Two, reflected you know, the interests and ambitions um, and strategic needs of the united states um that's something that we can kind of trace from from you know the the very beginning of refugee policy all the way through to the present day
0: right wow um you're talking about that common thread that stays throughout time and in history whether you know you're trying to combat communism during the cold war so the immigrants that you want to uh, receive and, and and come into the country uh, have to be a reflection of the american values the capitalist values um and then also i did not know about the canadian nova scotian immigrants and they were almost uh used as uh as a not a tool but um as people to drive out the native american influence so it still played a part in the US's ideal of what America should be and what it should look like and what values it should en- encompass. So you, you speak of notions of a deserving refugee versus undesirable. How were these groups defined more specifically? I know you gave a, an, an example with the, uh, the Canadian immigrants, but how was that defined pre-World War II and how was that defined after World War II? I know you talked about the Cold War, but I want to say even after that, right after the Cold War, what was some of the the governing ideals of a desirable refugee versus an undesirable refugee?
1: Yeah. So uh, prior to World War II, or I guess I should say, you know, really prior to the 20th century, um, because this is maybe a kind of more consistent 19th century phenomenon refugee policy and, and conceptions of who was a deserving and kind of legitimate bona fide refugee often revolved around uh, loyalty to the nation and and often military service as well. So you know we had just talked about the Canadian and Nova Scotian refugees of 1798 and these were folks who um, you know in many instances they didn't just support or were loyal to the United States, Um, but they also often, uh, you know, were part of the military effort of the revolution. Um, I think the phrase that was used in the 1798 law um, that kind of defines this particular group as refugees is um, services, sacrifices, and sufferings, right? So there's the idea that, you know, these people were displaced, um, they lost their homes, they endured. You know, uh, uh, great sacrifices, right? Um, but there was also they also served the United States. There's kind of a, an exchange relationship there, right? Um, that general kind of framing um, also we see that again during the Civil War. So in the Civil War, mm-hmm. there are two moments, two instances in which the United States recognizes um, Native Americans as refugees and emancipated and slaves as refugees, and in in both of those instances, again, you know, military service, participating in the Union's war effort is part of what is, uh, what is leading the US government to recognize these particular groups um, as refugees, who then are you know, entitled to um, different forms of, of relief, um, again, as a result of, of what they suffered, but also how they served the United States. Um, so that's you know, definitely a big part of the picture. In the 19th century, Um, you know, we can still we can see kind of remnants of that in the present, especially if we think about, you know, the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan um, just earlier this year. Right. Or I guess, you know, I'm thinking of the academic year um, earlier in 2021 when, uh, (laughs) um, you know, there, there was just so much debate and so much conversation about whether the United States should should welcome all Afghan refugees. And, you know, some people were saying, yes, absolutely. You know, all refugees from Afghanistan should be able to enter the US. Some people were saying, you know, maybe we should prioritize folks from Afghanistan who um, in some way aided or assisted the United States uh, military presence in the region um, for you know, the, the 20 or so years that the United States was there. Um, so again, that that's kind of a, a consistency um, that we can see, or, you know, if not a perfect consistency throughout the long arc of U.S. refugee history, um, there's that kind of parallel between those very early moments in the 19th century and in the present day.
0: Yeah. Right. So you're, you're currently writing the state of refugee. First of all, how, how far along are you in this, uh, <laughs> this work? Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, so, um, there's been a bit, a bit of a curveball for you. So the ti- the title's changed, um, yeah oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and we'll we'll see if this will be the the actual title, but the the tentative mm-hmm. title I'm working with right now is um, Refuge of Oppression: The Making of the United States Refugee Regime. And mm-hmm. how far along am I? Uh, i was I was really incredibly fortunate um, just in December, uh, about two months ago to have a book manuscript workshop um, that uh, my center at Harvard hosted for me. Um, where I had two really wow. incredible scholars who I've looked up to for a really long time, uh, Naomi Paik and Paul Kramer, um, had the chance to read, read my whole manuscript. Um, I have a draft of my manuscript and they read it and uh, gave me really incredible feedback that, you know, I'm now starting to, to turn back to, to that, to turn back to their comments and start working on revising the manuscript. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an eight chapter project, at least as I'm currently conceiving of it. And uh, I have full drafts of six of the eight chapters and the, the work for the next, gosh, I guess from now until till the fall is to, you know, revise the chapters I have in shape and, and then finish writing the, the remaining two chapters that are uh, still need to be worked out yeah so um yeah i mean i've been really fortunate and really lucky to have some opportunities to focus on the project and uh, i'm excited to to get back to uh writing and uh and revising pretty
0: intensely over the next couple months yeah that's quite a journey <laughs> writing an entire book like right, that takes Focus and concentration and long nights. So, uh, Godspeed there. And what what is the main question you're you're trying to solve in this manuscript?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there there are a few kind of central questions. Um, the first is really, I mean, you know, why is it, or how, you know, how did it come to be that that United States refugee policy is the way it is in our in our own present moment? in our in our current times um so you know i we at the very kind of start of the podcast we had talked a little bit about ellis island and kind of that you know gulf that divide between the nation of immigrants narrative and um you know the actual experiences of of immigrants um there's kind of a similar uh divide between the myth of refugee policy and the reality of refugee policy right um so you know, all since the founding of the United States, uh, when Thomas, P- Thomas Paine wasn't a really influential political thinker who wrote this pamphlet, Common Sense, um, it was part of kind of what spurred the, the, uh, the colonies to independence in 1776. Um, there's a really kind of famous line in Common Sense where Thomas Paine describes the U.S. as an asylum for mankind. Um, a place where you know people the world over would be able to find asylum from from tyranny, right, and and find freedom. Um, so this idea that kind of refuge, asylum, sanctuary would be part of the United States is as old as the nation itself. Um, And yet there's been so many instances throughout history when, you know, we can see refugee policy being used in a more conditional way, in a more utilitarian way um, that kind of serves the interests and needs of the United States more so than the needs and interests of refugees. Um, And the book, yeah, the book is trying to tell that story of how how that came to be. Why is it that refugee policy is, is that way? And, um, you know, it's, it's something that's obviously deeply relevant for our own times, right? So there's, you know, more than 82 million displaced peoples around the world, I think, is the latest figure from the United Nations. And um, the United States, at least, you know, Biden's goal for the year is, I think, 125,000 refugees to be admitted. Um, in the grand scheme of things, that's that's not very many people, right, who are going to be able to find a pathway into the United States. And, um, you know, there's, even though the United States has in many ways, uh, internationally, uh, has welcomed a lot of refugees, especially since 1980, the Refugee Act of 1980. But um, certainly, especially when we keep in mind, the fact that many refugees from around the world are displaced because of conditions that the US had a role in cultivating, especially if we think about, you know, US imperialism and US wars of foreign aggression um, throughout Asia. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people flee because the United States was, was there in their countries at some point in time. Um, so yeah, I think there, there's a a question about, you know, whether or not the United States is doing all it could um for refugees around the world. And, you know, th- those kinds of questions are are a part of the project as well. Just kind of thinking through um not just why are things the way they are, but um, should should they be the way they are, right? Is there more that can be done? Um, you know, and as I say all that too, you know, I also recognize that um, this is such a it's such a global question, right? It's not just about the United States. Um, there's also the bigger question of the role of the U.S. in the world. And at the same time, there's also the question of, you know, the root causes of, of conflicts that cause people to flee and need refuge and, and need asylum. Um, and so in some ways that the project is also getting at that question of root causes, um, in the sense that, uh, you know, my book is on the one hand, looking at the question of how the United States has welcomed and excluded refugees. Uh, it's also looking at the question of how the U S has created refugees, um, throughout time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that, that was kind of a long, long-winded, uh, answer to your question. But, um, I think the, the only other thing I'd say, um, as a, response to, you know, what is the kind of main question of the book? Um, One one of the main questions certainly is, you know, um, what is what does it mean for the United States? uh, You know, a nation founded in settler colonialism, a nation founded in slavery, a nation founded in the restriction of citizenship to to white men. uh, What does it mean for a nation like that to claim to be a place of refuge? Um, You know, these are these are projects that are kind of contradictory. and I think that's a question that uh, you know uh, that, that needs to be reckoned with. Right.
0: Uh, wow, that's quite an undertaking. <laughs> but I, I'm excited about the work that you're doing. Um, it's needed because before we can know where we're going as a nation, we have to know where we've been and to reflect upon it, more importantly, get the history right get the history, correct. That's super important. So at least we have the right compass. (laughs) We have the right GPS and the map, and this is the work that you're doing. And we can take a more critical look about us policy, immigration policy and where we stand in the world. And, and how that affects the world, and I'm gonna to have to have you on next because the the next conversation is like how the United States uh, created refugees. Uh, that's a interesting take, and I, I would love to hear more about that sometime. So I'm excited about your book, and when actually are you thinking about releasing it? Do we have like a deadline or, or, or a, a date?
1: Uh, not not quite yet. So you know I. I... Mm-hmm. and still writing and drafting and revising um, you know realistically keeping in mind how kind of academic publishing works it'll, it'll probably still be maybe I don't know three years or so two and a half to three years mm-hmm. until the book is is released but uh yeah no I appreciate the question I'll, I'll definitely uh, let you know and, and send you a copy when it's out
0: awesome I'm gonna hold you to it <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah please do, please
0: do. <laughs> great well Evan thank you so much for the work that you do and if people want to keep in contact and keep up to date with your work and especially this book and your other projects where can they find you
1: yeah um so i I am on twitter um folks can find me at uh, e Taparata, my last name um i i admittedly don't use twitter a whole lot to to tweet myself i don't post a whole lot on there but um better for you man (laughs) good for (laughs) your mental health yeah 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 for real um but, you know, if folks send me a message there, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely see it, um, though it may take me some time to respond. Um, otherwise, uh, you know, folks can definitely feel free to reach out to me via email. Um, it's uh, etaparata at fas.harvard.edu. If you look me up online, um, you know, you'll find my profile there and the email address is there as well. Um, but yeah, absolutely. You know, love, love to be in conversation.
0: Great. Well, Evan, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I thank you.
1: Thanks so much, Ian. I really appreciate it.
0: Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMM Nerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.